content warning. This episode discusses depression and suicide. If you or someone you know needs support, there is a list of links in the description of this podcast. Good morning and welcome to the Monday Call. I'm Stefan Clark, Chief Client Officer at NZ Funds. Mental health awareness has grown in recent years, but there's still a long way to go. The statistics are alarming. Nearly half of all Kiwis experience mental illness or addiction issues at some point in their lives. And about 40% of people who are off work are absent due to a mental health condition. This has a significant impact on individuals, families, and workplaces. Today, we are joined by Mike Kim, television personality, reformed comedian, New Zealander of the Year, and mental health advocate to discuss this important topic. Mike has dedicated many years of his life now to tackling mental health and regularly speaks about how we can support one another and to lead a positive and productive life, both in the home and at work. Welcome, Mike. It is awesome to have you here. Very excited to have you join. Um, Look, I've got heaps of questions um, on on this topic, but I thought it would be great to start with. um, Take us through your early years and how you came to make the decision to to change your career and focus on this topic? So um, most people in New Zealand know me through my comedy persona yep. and through that persona they know me as a confident, aggressive, politically incorrect, foul-mouthed comedian. <laughs> uh, what most people don't know about me or just learning about me is I'm a drug addict, I'm an alcoholic and I've had self-esteem issues uh, for most of my life, rejection issues, confidence issues. For most of my life issues I had behind a a wall of drugs and alcohol issues I hid behind a, a mask of toughness, but underneath that mask there was a little boy who was terrified people were going to find out I was vulnerable. So I've spent most of my life riddled with self-doubt. Um, and I had a loud, boisterous persona to cover that up. Most people would would class me as an extrovert. I'm actually an introvert who is a master at playing an extrovert. Why? Because from a very young age, we learn that extroverts are valued by society and introverts are made to feel less than. Why don't you just get out there? Just, just go out there and, you and do it. really push yourself. And yeah. you know, you can't be staying home all the time reading a book. And you're so you know. Um, for for me, as a kid growing up, I was always trying to, to prove myself. Um, I was one of those loud, boisterous kids. My dad used to think I was showing off. I didn't do it to show off. I was doing it to prove myself. Uh, why? Because as a kid growing up, I never felt like I was good enough. Other kids were better than me. They were faster, stronger, uh, academically more gifted than I was. So I felt like in order to boost my self-esteem, I needed to be world champion at something. So I was a great starter of projects and a very poor finisher. Why? I would start everything looking for that one thing that was going to set me apart from everybody else. And the second I realized I couldn't be world champion, I quit. Approval. Yeah, yeah. I, I had to quit. Why? Because there's no point in pursuing anything just to be average. But, and that used to really upset my dad. Yeah. My dad was like, yeah, you know, he was old school. Yeah, yeah once you start something, you've got to see it through to the finish. You've got to see it through to the finish. So, 
you know, I was brutal with self-doubt. I've always had an overactive and a critic. Um, no matter what I have done in my life, I always focus on the negative. Um, I'd come off stage as a stand-up comedian and go, that's the funniest shit I've ever seen. And all I'm thinking is I blew that joke. I never got the laugh there that I should have. You know, my timing was out there. So, you know, I guess that makes me an average Kiwi. The only difference between me and other Kiwis is um, I'm very open about myself. That I'm very open about the struggles um, that I've gone through. Um and I have come to understand that the one thing that is missing in, in society today is vulnerability. You know, we live in a, uh, you know, vulnerability is seen as a weakness in, uh, in this country, at the opposite end of the spectrum to strength, but as Brene Brown uh, aptly points out, no act of bravery or strength ever happened without vulnerability. Why? Vulnerability, the dictionary description of vulnerability is exposing yourself to mental and physical harm. And when Willie Apiata jumped out of that foxhole to go and save his two mates, he exposed himself to mental and physical harm to perform that act of bravery. So once you can start reframing things and, and helping people to understand, if we just look at things slightly differently, uh, things will get better. So, you know, the change for me, came when I gave up drugs and alcohol in 2007. And I was kind of a lost fish there for a long time. Um, my comedy career or my style of comedy came with two halves style of comedy, you know, hey, you know, misogynist, homophobic, you know, the, uh, what would I call it? I'd call it um, uh, construction site humour had come to an end. There was a new era coming in, so I could see the writing was on the wall for my style of comedy. I was, I wouldn't say being cancelled, I was cancelling myself. Um, and so then one day a uh, lovely district court judge, an Auckland district court judge, gave me 200 hours of community service for riding my motorbike without a licence. I thought that was pretty harsh. I mean, I know criminals that are getting like we've got on Hoskins this morning, we've got 100 murderers on ankle bracelets at home. So 200 hours, um, I was very resentful, I was very angry. Uh, and while I was sitting at home trying to figure out how I was um, going to serve my community's 200 hours, I got a phone call from a principal in Taipa Area School. And this particular principal used to come to Auckland every weekend. I think his family was in Auckland, and he was a principal, and he would drive home on a Sunday night. And on Sunday nights, I would be doing my show, The Nathas Club, on Radio Live. And he'd obviously heard me talking about my issues, and these, uh, this, this area school had lost nine of their community to suicide in the space of a couple of months. So he asked me to go up there and, and talk to the kids. Now... I had been working with psychiatrists and psychologists and the Mental Health Foundation and everyone else. And the way they framed uh, problems uh, with young people in mental health was a clinical and academic view. Um, and I just took it as, as read as you do. I mean, this is evidence-based evaluated program, so, you know, it must be true. And so I went up there with a, with a set... Um, 
with a, with a set vision of what I was going to say and what I was going to do. Um, and when I got there and listened to the kids, it was all, to put it frankly, bullshit. You know, it just, it, you know, it, it didn't resonate. And, um, you know, one of the kids said to me before I even started, you know, what makes you any different? All we've had up here is a bunch of people from Auckland and Wellington, politicians and, you know, uh, Ministry of Health officials went out there and, you know, they come up here and they told us what our problems are and, and they told us how to fix it. Uh, but the problems in Auckland Wellington are not problems up here and no one's hearing us. So at that moment there, I decided that I was going to share my battle, uh, my constant life battle with this overactive inner critic and the kids went from leaning back in their chair going, yeah, here we go, another old person coming up here with what to do, to yeah. suddenly they were nudging their mates going, you know. And kids were able to, they were able to recognize the beginning of their journey in my story. And because I took my mask off, they took their masks off. And when it comes to the Q&A, um, Everything that I knew about young people completely disappeared. So after this all, the teacher came in, one of the teachers came in and said, well, that was incredible. Um, I've got five young people on suicide watch right now. And they related, they saw themselves in your story. Can you talk to them? And I was like, yeah, sure. I've never talked to, you know, suicidal kids before, but I'll, you know, I'll give it a go. And I walked in there and expected them to see all sad kids just, you know, um, crying and and I walked in and they were all sitting there smiling and I was like, "Hey, this isn't what I thought it would yeah, be. hey, hey, yeah." <laughs> and they, were, they were like, "Good, good, we're good." And I'm like, "Well, apparently you want to kill yourself. <laughs> you might want to tell your face." And so I said, "So I said to the first kid, so I said, what's up with you? And you know, why are you suicidal?' And he, he told me a story. He's like, you know, um, so this has happened, da-da-da, 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 da-da-da. And I was like, holy crap. First thing I said to him was congratulations, because if that was me, I don't think I would be sitting where you are, so that's amazing. And then I said to him, have you talked to your mum and dad? And he's like, no. And I said, why not? Uh, I'm a father of five, and he's like, because every time you talk to your parents, they make it about them, and they just make you feel worse. And I go, can you give me an example? He went, yeah, sure, da-da-da. And I was like, oh, shit, I do that. Da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. And I was like, everything that he said, I did with my own kids. So at that moment, I did what every adult does. I went to the next kid and I said, what about you? That's a young Māori boy, good-looking kid. And I said, you know, what's your issue? And I said, he said, first off, I'm gay. And we're in Northland, right? This is hardcore gang Northland. So being a stupid um, male who just makes assumptions, I went, well, that must be pretty tough, wrestling with sexuality up here in gangland Northland. That must be really tough. He goes, I'm sweet with being gay. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, so, so what's the issue? And he said, I'll never forget. Every time I hear the word fat, ho, gay, poor, even from my friends who I know love me, I think, well, this is how the world sees me, and what's the point? Now, that was like a knife through my heart. Why? 
because not only was I saying these words on radio, television, uh, and in my live shows, I was actively encouraging people to say those things as a joke. So then I talked to the other three kids, and just as I recognized their, their life and my story, I recognized my life as a parent in their story. And in that moment, that was a moment where I recognized that I was the problem, that my generation was the problem. It's not the kids, it's our leadership, our mentorship, the way we behave around young people was causing them to shut down and not communicate with us. So. For me, I remember going home and thinking with my own kids, you know, but there for the grace of God go I. You know, these could have been my kids. And you're four at that point, was it? Or you're four kids at that point? Or five. Five now. Yeah, yeah, five of that kid. Yeah, five, 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 five kids five. at that point. Yeah. Six now. And wow. it was just like, it was a game changer for me. It was like, so I got home and I said to my wife, you know, she said, how was it? And I go, it was unbelievable. Yeah. You know, I think I found my calling. And um, she said, it must have gone well because there's another two schools here. <laughs> and they wanted you to go up. So I went up and spoke at those two schools, got home, she said, there's another two schools. They want to talk to you now. This is where it got interesting. So I had three schools now in Northland and they, love what I'm doing and there's more schools booking. That's when the Ministry of Health, the police and everyone else got involved and started uh, spreading this rumour that I was dangerous, that I was in schools talking about suicide. Not true. Um, and they were going into the schools, saying to the schools, don't have this man in here. You know, it could lead to the death of, of children. And so suddenly I was being cancelled. I had meetings with them. I had meetings with the suicide prevention officer for the area. Um, and they wanted me out of the game. And what is it now? Uh, 10 years on, 11 years on, they're still trying. You know, and uh, I've come to understand the reason for it. Uh, the reason for it is. Uh, he who controls the narrative controls the money. It's all about money. Right. This is a lucrative. Um, this is a lucrative industry, and how they control, um, how they control the industry, how they control the narrative is by funding organisations and threatening to cut their funding off if they don't toe the party line. So for me. Right from the get-go, I understood that if I wanted to be in this game, you've got to be self-funded. If you want to change the way things operate and make a real difference for young people, then you have to fund yourself. Um, so that's that's the, the battle that I'm involved in. Um, the political landscape doesn't make any difference. You know, people have been saying to me now, you know, well, if National get in, they're going to fund you. No, they're not. They're not. They can't. 
Why can't they? Because politician politicians allocate funds. Yeah. Yeah. They're not allowed to direct where the funds go because that would be political interference. It would open up it would open everything up to to scam to them. But 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 the, that doesn't mean that, you know, that that there aren't questionable decisions made. For example, Robin Shearer, who's um, been just, she is the Deputy General of um, Te Whatu Order and Mental Health. Um, she's been trying to cancel me right from the get-go. Now, you know, I'm, now I'm not suggesting that there is anything untoward, but she came from uh, an organisation called uh, The Wise Group. The Wise Group are probably the, the the agency that gets the most funding, and, and she was the CEO of one of their branches. Uh, I think when she came in, they were getting around ninety million dollars. Uh, three years later, I think they're getting around a hundred and fifty-five million dollars. Yeah. You know, and I'm not saying there's anything untoward, but join the dots. Yeah. You know, so you know, th this is this is the this is the battle we're in. Um, um, you know, I've never met a politician I've never liked. Politician, uh, and I've never met a bureaucrat that I've liked. <laughs> but, the, but there's a reason for it, right? So when politicians go in, they're there to make a difference to the people. Once they're in there, and especially for a long length of time, their goal is to stay there. But their, their first instinct when you go in is to make a difference. You're motivated by work. Yeah. Yep. Bureaucrats' motivation is to climb the ladder, to climb the ladder. So their interest is self, and their goal is to climb the ladder without having any black marks on their record. So they are motivated by risk, risk to me, not risk to the people, risk to me, which is why you see so much waste, um, you know, and, and like, for example, just, just a classic example is um, the orange cone business, you know, $350,000 to build a speed hump. Materials, 25000 325000 on bureaucracy. And, and it's not about keeping the workers safe. You know, that's what they're trying to keep the workers. It has nothing to do with that. If a car comes along and hits that worker, some bureaucrat is going to get into trouble. So they just throw money away on rubbish. Yeah, I mean... Sorry, I'm going all good. Oh, no, 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 it's all right. It's all good. It's a, it's a fascinating story. I mean, the, um, the inflection point from when you went to those schools and then you obviously decided at that point, okay, I'm going to change up where I'm spending my energy. Yep. And I'm going to change up um, where I want to have an impact. Yep. And you went down the path to focusing on mental health. Yes. How did you how did you go from the schools to I'm going to now set up the you know the things so, I've been involved in? Ironically, and, uh, ironically the trust was set up before I went into the schools. Okay. It was set up early because I was doing a show um, called The Nutters Club. Yeah. Now, when I came in with Anatos Club, I did what everyone else does. I wanted to change everything. Yeah. And when you want to change, and, you know, it was, it was motivated by um, 
by need. So when you're, you have low self-esteem and rejection issues, taking on other people's problems means you can ignore your own. So I tried to do everything. And um, I quickly realized that people would take advantage of that. So I would be fighting a battle and I'd go back to the person. I'd go, hey, look, Stefan, that thing that you want, I'm still working on it, mate. Don't worry. I, I've got it. And you'll go, oh, no, I saw that last week. What are you, what, what, what are you doing? <laughs> did you think to tell me? Because I've been carrying. So I quickly, you know, realized that you can't be everything to everyone. So... I went straight down to the sharp end, which is we have the highest youth suicide rate in the world at the time. I think we're second now. Um, and that's where I wanted to make the difference. And I didn't know, I did not know where I fit. When I first came in, I was frustrated. You know, it was really frustrating for my board because they knew that I'm, by me going in and sharing my story, their whole thing was, let's just get lots of my kings into schools and let's, you know, this is the answer. And I was like, no. And they're like, why not? This is, you know, what you're doing works. So we get other celebrities. I go, we still don't know what the problem is. We're on to something. But I need to sit down and, and research and get as much information as I can to find out what the problem is before we come up with a solution. And, and so I lost board members over that. Oh, you're just doing this and, you know, we've got the solution. This is our job, our job. I said, well, just go. Um, and it took me, it took me till 2017-18 to figure out the biggest problem in mental health today isn't depression, anxiety, uh, bullying, suicide ideation. These are all outcomes. Yeah. These are all a result of. The biggest problem in mental health today is imposter syndrome, overthinking, and overactive inner critic. That is the biggest problem. And, and we're living, uh, yeah, and, and the conditions are ripe for incubation because we're living in a world now where perfection is the only acceptable standard. 99% of what everyone here does is perfect on a weekly basis. Uh, but no one cares about what we're doing well anymore because 99% of our energy is focused on what could go wrong, what has gone wrong, and what's going wrong right now. So no one feels appreciated. No one feels like they're being hurt. No one feels valued. So what's happening there is we're all putting on this mask and pretending we've got our shit together. Now, but most of us don't. <laughs> well, none of us do. But imagine, you know, yeah. and that's fine yeah. because we've got water under the bridge, right? We've, we've got we've got coping skills. But imagine you're a child. Respectfully, I say this. I would hate to be the child of anyone working here or anyone watching this. Why? Because you're all perfect. You've all climbed the mountain. You're all, you're all up there. Can you imagine the pressure of your children looking at you, constantly being told what they're doing wrong, constantly pushed to, to do better, and constantly uh, having the example um, cited to them of our struggles. You know, I had nothing when you're uh, when I was your age. Uh, your mother and I lived in a cardboard box, and this is what. And now, 
Now a child is just sitting there watching all of this, you know, they come home from school, tell you about five things out there, that four amazing ones bad, and you're focusing on the maths test? What do you mean you failed that maths test? I told you on Thursday. So, so as a child, that's a hell of a hurdle to climb. And they've got self-doubt. They've got all of those things times a hundred. Yeah. And they're hiding that behind that mask of um, disobedience, uh, of, you know, um, PlayStation, anything to get them out of that world so they can ignore that inner critic. So, so what do adults do to ignore the inner critic or to overcome the inner critic? What, where, where have you got to and you're thinking about it as a person with an overactive... Well, it's really simple. You know, we're all addicted to something. Uh, men and women today have become addicted to their jobs. You know why? Because you can use uh, the credit card as an example of what a great parent I am. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like money is the love language that we are using now. So we are focused on our work. Um, and, you know, th this isn't... this. None of this is our fault. This was handed down. So you were brought up, you, your dad? Three. Yeah. So you were brought up exactly the same as I was. And, you know, like we're from, you know, without being crass, different classes of people, right? You, you know, you've got your, your group of friends is completely different to mine. But we were brought up with the same values. Yeah. Protect your family. Yeah. Provide for your family, give your kids a better opportunity than you had, and never show fear. Yeah. Never show fear. Why never show fear? Because fear creates uncertainty, and little people are scared around uncertainty. So the first three are work. Mm. Yeah. You've got to work to achieve those things. And, and the last one is the most devastating. So when you're stressed at work, mm -hmm. when things are going wrong at work, when you don't feel valued and appreciated and you're constantly, you know, this is not a criticism. This is not a criticism, Stefan. This is just something for you to work on. You know, you've got to have goals. You've got to have targets. So you're going home. Your kid comes up to you, how was your day today, Dad? Had a terrible day, I don't want to talk about it. Hey, go to the fridge. <laughs> yeah, go, go, go to the fridge, give me a beer, I'll be on the couch. Yeah. Yep. Now, what happens there is, now your child, because you're not communicating how you're feeling and how you got to that feeling, yeah. your child will make it about them. It must be my fault. Yeah. You know, what do you do to dad? Every time he comes home, he's always upset. He never wants to talk to you. It must be, what about the masses? I should have done that, man. So I will make up a story and it will be about me. Whereas a simple communication, even a word this way, a simple communication as to why you are upset. Mm. I had a terrible day today, son. I screwed up at work. I lost one of our big customers. I'm going to try and get them back tomorrow. But hey, buddy, thanks. Thank you for noticing. Yeah. You know that's that's what I love about you, mate. You could see that I was struggling, and I struggle just yeah. like you struggle. Yeah. I have imposter syndrome just like you, buddy. Yeah. But come here, give me a hug. You think it's a Kiwi thing? What do you think? It's, no, think no, it's, no, it's a human thing. Yeah, a human you know thing. this. So <laughs> this is the great. You know this. 
Kiwis are very humble. We're all very humble people. We don't like praise. The reason people don't like praise is because they have imposter syndrome and they don't believe they deserve it. Yeah. Oh, Kiwi blow stuff. Hell yes, they love. <laughs> they love praise. Every man that watches this goes home and said to the wife, hey, doll, I fixed that squeaky door wanting a pat on it. What did you get up to today? Apart from just looking after the kids, going to work, cooking dinner. I fixed the squeaky door. Yeah. So we, everyone wants It was very praise. squeaky, though, let's say. <laughs> but yeah. everyone wants praise. Yeah. So, you know, the, the easiest way to tell if someone has got an overactive inner critic, big or small, give them a compliment. Yeah. And as soon as they look at the ground or pass that compliment off, you know that they are focusing on the things that they did wrong, the things that they could have done better. And this is hereditary, it's passed on and amplified in the work environment, particularly with risk management now. Everyone is covering their ass and no one is willing to show vulnerability because it might hinder their climb up the ladder. No one's willing to admit that they have anxiety, that they you know, have mental health issues because when it comes to a choice between Stefan and John, mm. well, Stefan did have that little incident. You know, he's right now, but he had that little... So instead of us seeing that as an advantage, as, as someone who can empathise with 99% of the office, they go with Steely John who's got exactly the same problems, he's just better at hiding it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, communicating with children in the schools. Yeah. You've done a lot of that. Yeah. So tell me about how, um, what you've learned through that process and the language you use and you know what it is that, um, what it is that connects with them because you're going into lots of different schools, aren't you? The only thing that connects with kids is authenticity. Kids can spot bullshit from a million miles away. So I communicate with them exactly the same way that I am communicating with you. My gift um, is I can turn complex problems into bite-sized chunks that people can understand. That's why I resonate with the public, simply because I take a big problem and I, and I, and I make it uncomplicated. And I'll give you a classic example. If you ask, if you had someone here, even Nigel Ladder, if you said to Nigel, you know, so why have we got such a, um, you know, um, a high source of, well, it's a very complicated issue, Stefan. You know, it's very Multiple complicated. Multiple factors. Yeah, so, so, you know, oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's so complicated, in fact, we don't want anyone talking about it because talking about it is very dangerous. So I've got the white coat. I'm the expert. Yeah. Um, leave it with me. Um, suicide ideation is simple. Um, there are three reasons people take their own lives. One, I'm hurting. I'm in pain and I want the pain to stop. Whether it's, uh, if you're older, physical pain. Uh, whether you're younger, it's mental pain. Everyone says that this is going to be a passing phase. Everyone says that it's going to go away. But every day I wake up and it's there and I just need it to stop. So one, I'm hurting. Two, I'm causing hurt. I feel like with my hurt, I'm a burden to everyone. I walk into rooms, I suck the oxygen from the rooms. My, everyone sighs, or in my imagination, everyone sighs when I walk in. Look, if I'm not here, 
you can get on with your life and, and everything, uh, you know, your, your life will, will be much better without me. So one, I'm hurting. Two, I'm causing hurt. Three, I want to cause hurt. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. So at the heart of all suicidal thinking, it's just people who are hurting. They're not drama queens. They're not attention seekers. They're not all the cliches. That they're not selfish. All these cliches we throw out um, to make ourselves feel better. Yeah. You know, instead of going, why didn't my friend come to me when he died? What a selfish bastard. Totally. You know, so we're always looking. So at the heart of all suicide is hurt. And our job as a society is to help carry people over that hurt when they're going through it. Or, or proactively do what we do, go into schools and normalize emotions and normalize thinking normalize overthinking and we do that but how many of you have had that thought how many of you have thought like this how many of you have done this now look around yep. and when the kids look around and see all of their heroes have their hands up suddenly it's like i'm normal we've all got it we've all got it um in researching and then I did a bit of background um, all before this. Well, of course it is, I'm sure it is. One of the things that came through was a real focus from you on shifting the narrative to positive thinking and being constructive and how you move um, in the workplace, at home, um, in your personal life. What do you do practically um, to, I guess, when you identify that, you know, say you've got an acrylic coming away, mm-hmm. but you know that's holding you back and you're standing yep. in your own way and doing something that's important yep. to you. What do you, do you have techniques or do you, how do you think about um, well, cutting through that? Two points. One, uh, I'm 61 years old. I'm in the final 100 metres. I've had two major strokes. Um, I've had two um, procedures uh, on my heart. Yeah. Um, my blood pressure's generally around 200 over 170. Um, I I don't notice it. I feel great. I've never felt any, you know. Mm-hmm. But so, but it's there. there. It's an inevitability. So for me, I've spent thirty years of my life having fun. Yeah. You know, I was traveling the world. I was on stages with Dave Chappelle and Bill Burr and yeah. all of these wonderful. You know, I I used to bring hip hop artists into New yeah. Zealand. I was doing drugs and alcohol. I had V8 motorbikes and you know holiday homes and drivers. So I've you know I've I've had a life searching for happiness. Yeah. And I remember when I had it all, had everything. I've never been more miserable in my life. Yeah. So. Um, for me, I have a purpose now. And when I fight bureaucracy, when it all gets too much, when people say, wow, you look really tired, I go and speak in the school. Yeah. Or I go and speak to uh, a suicidal young person. I did that twice yesterday. And, and by sharing with them my experience, which is exactly what they are going through right now, it filled my cup. It reminds me why I need to do this every time I think about quitting because bureaucracy is getting to me. Um, I, I, I talk to young people and I'm reminded that at the heart of what I do is young people. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
go to my grave very, very, very happy. Um, people keep saying to me, oh, Mike, you're out there. You know, you're trying to change the world. Let it go, mate. You're trying. I'm not trying to change the world. I'm trying to inspire young people and give them permission to go out and change the world. And that's all they're looking for. They are looking for permission. They want to know that their voice is heard and someone's listening. So, you know, that's that's what I do. That's awesome. How, because um, you've got all this energy and you put all this um, energy into this important cause and your purpose, as you call it. And how does it, how do you channel that practically? You've got some foundations you're working with. Yep. Um, take us through that, and why? Because there's a, a number of them, and what their different roles are. Uh, so we have. Um, so we've got our legal entity, which is the I Am Hope Foundation. We used to be called the Nutters Club uh, Charitable Trust. Very hard to get into schools when you're called the Nutters Club <laughs> Charitable yeah. Trust. And that was named after already. Then we changed to the Key to Life Charitable Trust. Um, very hard to get into schools when everyone thinks you're an evangelist yeah. organisation. So. We Branding um, matters. Yeah, branding matters a lot. So we're the I Am Hope Foundation. Yeah. That's where our board sits. That's where all the decisions are made. Um, that's where we keep the organization safe. That's where all the accounting and everything else goes. The face of our organization is I Am Hope. Yeah. I Am Hope is charged with positively changing uh, the way people act, uh, think, act, and feel around mental health. Why is this important? So in our research, what we've discovered is 40%, and this is a conservative number, 40% of kids in school today will have a major crisis, often associated with some type of suicidal thinking before they leave school. Not, not in their lifetime, before they leave school. Now that freaks people out. But it shouldn't because 99.9% .9 of the people watching this video, whether you will admit it or not, you've all had a suicidal, we've all had a suicidal thought. If you haven't left your home at least once in your life after a breakup, a job loss, or what, you know, some tragedy loss of a loved one and thought, what's the point? Then you must be living in a marshmallow. A thought is just a thought and thoughts should be encouraged. Um, the statistic that everyone should worry about is 80% of suicidal kids never ask for help ever. Yeah. And the reason they never ask for help is because they're worried about what society will think, what society will say, and what society will do. And what's our solution for anyone who's struggling with suicidal thinking? Hey, if you're struggling, reach out and ask for help. Can you see the oxymoron there? Yeah. I've just told you I'm scared of sharks. And your solution is, hey, go into some shark-infested waters <laughs> and a Dotford might come along. So our goal is to change the thinking. If 40% of kids have a suicidal thought before they leave school, you must have had at least two kids come up to you and go, hey, Stefan, I'm having these thoughts. Can I talk to you about it? Mm. Can I talk to you about it? You must have had at least one mate in the last two years come up to you and go, hey, bro, I'm having these thoughts. Can I talk to you about it? And if this hasn't happened, mm. you've got to look in the mirror and you've got to ask yourself, what is it about me that makes me unapproachable to the people that I love?
why aren't they coming to me to to Shit. talk about this and share this mm. the, this problem and and it's not because people are bad right you know, if it hasn't happened yet, it's not because you're a bad person. It's because you've never been vulnerable. You've never talked about I have people coming up to me every day, ringing me. Totally. I spoke with a, a, a guy that wanted to end his life uh, on the way in here today. But the only difference between is I'm open about my struggles. And, and people, you know, no one wants to talk to a drain layer about finance, right? So why would I talk to you about my mental health issues when you've never spoken about your experience? Yeah. So we need to be uh, more open. So our goal is societal attitudinal change. We started in high schools, now we're in primary schools. And in primary schools, we're normalizing emotions. So the big problem we've got today is kids think the only emotion they're allowed to have is happiness. That's all there. I just want you to be happy. Yeah. I just want you to be happy. Now, what you're saying to a child when you say that is, I want the best for you. I love you and I want the best for you. You know what your child's hearing? Any other emotion isn't acceptable. Yeah, of course. So I've got to hide. I have to hide. And, you know, so uh, our goal is to normalize emotions. So we, I, I liken emotions to seasons. Some are happy. Winter sad, um, autumn anger, and uh, spring new growth. Now um, you say to the kids, "So what's the what emotion? Happy summer. Summer's the best, right? Yes, love summer. What wish we had longer summers? Yes. What happens if it's sunny three hundred sixty-five days a year, kids? Everything dies. These other emotions are important. You need rain. You need sadness. It's part of who we are." lean into it. Anger is probably one of the most important emotions mm. that we have, yet we stifle it. You go and sit in the corner. You don't be angry. You it's it's, it's like suppressing a hurricane. Like now now storms are you know, they're bad. Mm. And sometimes they can be fatal. But again, you've got to lean into it. So what do you do? I tell parents, if you've got a, a young boy particularly who's always angry, get a big block of wood, put it in your backyard, and get a sledgehammer. And just let them go out there and just take their anger out. Mm -hmm. Because the anger is dissipating. It needs to come out. And then spring, reflection. What did I go through? What did I learn from this? This is where resilience comes from. Yet we've got people in schools right now teaching kids how to be resilient from a book. It's like teaching a boxer how to box out of a book. The only way you can be resilient in the boxing ring, guess what? Get punched in the face. <laughs> and the more you get punched in the face, you go, I've got to move my face and I've got to put my guard up and now I'm becoming resilient. I can do all of these things. You know, life isn't learned from a book. So you've got to give them an opportunity to to lean into those experiences and take their anger out in a constructive way so it gets out. So that's I Am Hope Shop. Now, so when we started, we were doing this thing. We always encourage counselling. That was 
for me, the key to my story was sharing my experience with a rich white counselor from Mount Eden. Like, the counselor I wanted to see was from, you know, I'm a working class Maori boy from West Auckland, so I would love to have seen a working class Maori girl counselor, right? Or a Maori boy counselor. And when I walked in and saw this woman, I thought, holy crap, what the hell can she do for me? She's not from... But the mere fact that she wasn't associated uh, with my class of person enabled her to have a neutral view of everything. And she saved my life. So I share that story with the kids and I encourage counsel. I encourage them to go see. So when I started in 2013, kids would ring and they would say, Hey man, because every kid gets my phone number, right? Mm -hmm. So on all the handout, well, not a help, but my number. So they would text me and they would bring me, hey Mike, you know, it's a great talk. Uh, I want to talk to someone, but there's no one here. Or um, the counselor's my mum and dad's friend, the counselor's yeah. a teacher, there's no privacy. So where do you live? I would book them the counselor and I would pay for it. Our organisation would pay for it. By 2018, it was running us at about 10 grand a month. So we're just flying under the radar at 10 grand a month. Then someone came up with the idea of Gumboot Friday. So having depression, not only is it like walking through mud, yeah. uh, having depression, you're suffering in silence and you think you're the only one going through it. So if for one day a year people put on gumboots so you can recognise a fellow sufferer or someone I can talk to. Yeah. So we had this idea for Gumboot Friday. Now, the person who gave me the idea said, you can raise money for your charity. And I saw that as the perfect opportunity to fund free counselling. Um, now, um, so on our first, uh, in our, in our first year, we decided that we were going to donate the money. Now, you know, whenever you, you, you see people shaking the bucket, do you go, how much is my money going to the cause and how much is, so we came up with this idea or I came up with this idea. I had 120 grand a year that I was already holding on to. I know nothing about finances, so I thought, yeah, that's enough to cover the admin. I can pay someone full-time to come in and do the job. So we'll donate 100% of people's donations directly to the council. Yeah. Worst business plan in the world. Um, because now, uh, two years ago, Gumboot Friday was funding 550 560 sessions a month, or $78,000. Now uh, we are funding 3,400 sessions a month, right. and it's costing me $520,000. So I have to go out every month and find $520,000, and we're not funded. So that's that's just to pay the councillors. Yeah. Then I've got my my organisations to, to pay for the wages, all the rest. Of it. Yeah. So that's a, that you know that's a serious that's, serious thing. That's my burden, and yeah. I'm happy now. Why have the numbers climbed? Ask me why the numbers have climbed. Tell me, Mike, why have the numbers climbed? Uh, because but I, I can imagine straight away it's because it's, every funded yeah. service. 1737 Youth Line, yep. Lifeline refer all of their 25 and unders to me. Right. So our funded agencies are referring their 25s and unders to an under, to a non-funded organisation. But here's the thing, 
people say to me all the time, well, just tell them they can't do it. I go, there's a kid at the end of that. I don't care where they come from. Well, why don't you go public? Why don't you go to the newspapers? Because if I did that, the bureaucrats at Te Whatu Order wouldn't come at me. They'd go to those organisations and say, do not fund, do not direct anyone to Gumboot Friday. Now, this is why I don't like bureaucrats, right? They don't care about the kids. All they care about is how they look. They have no interest in our kids. They have none. But they would, they would rather sacrifice kids' lives than, than look bad or have to fund. And that's, you know, I collect all the data for everything. So we've got the, the best uh, billing, booking, and data collection platform. You go to Tefata Water and ask where the money's gone that, from the organisations they are funding. They don't even collect data for the first three years. You can come to me at any time during the day. I can go to my platform provider. I can not only tell you where, when, uh, age, ethnicity, gender. I can tell you uh, uh, the severity of the age of whether they're in school, whether they're in work. I can give you all of that data like that. We are the most accountable and transparent organization out there, but we'll never get funding. Well, obviously it's something that you need at some level. Right. And it's, um, it's a cause that really, um, I don't know, anyone listening on this call will feel a connection to, I'm sure. Well, you know, the people watching this organization, you don't even know this, but the 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 um, what do you call it the uh, the cohort of people watching this mm. I guarantee you one in four people watching this has a child with an eating disorder eating disorders are the fastest growing mental health condition out there and it is the most deadly more young people die through eating disorders than all of the other classifications put together. It is deadly. And in order to see a specialist in eating disorders, you can wait up to 18 months before you can, you can see something. And the bigger problem that you have got is your ethnicity. Your ethnicity. This bureaucracy has made mental health, youth mental health, an, an ethnic and an economic problem. It is a brown, lower socioeconomic problem. I don't know how many times I have been told by bureaucrats that, Mike, you know, the problem with you is you're giving free counselling away to, to kids whose parents can afford it. Mm. That's racist. I don't care what colour, like, how you paint it. They are all our children, and every child deserves care. You know, but by making it uh, um, an ethnic problem, and, and there is evidence to back it up, right? There is evidence to actually back it up. But just because something's a good thing doesn't mean it should be done. Because by making... 20% of the population's kids the priority, you know, what we think we're saying is these are the ones that need it most. Mm. 
the message that the 80% is getting, your kids aren't as important as these kids. And no one is more important than our children. And just because you have uh, the means to, to pay for care doesn't mean you can find a counsellor doesn't mean you can find the help, even in the private sector. So we're kind of like the, the quarterly lounge of, of care. You know, I had a friend come around who thought has got an eating disorder, 10 years old, and cutting. Um, she said to me, oh, you know, she's Māori too, and she said, oh, you know, um, I'll, I'll go and see a Māori. Um, I'll get, get her into a Māori. I said, no, 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 you won't. You will go to Gumboot Friday and you will let your daughter decide who she wants to see. She decides, not based on ethnicity, based on what she is seeing and what is written. Mm -hmm. So she got a counsellor and her mum ran me afterwards and she goes, oh my God, bro. As soon as it was as over, our girl said to me, mum, can Julie be my counsellor all the time? Mm -hmm. Boom. We've yes. got to put the needs of the kids first. The other thing that jumps to mind for me is that comment you made earlier about um, not wanting the parents to know and the privacy of um, the fact that the kid wants to be able to talk to someone without. And if, okay. you're, if you're funding through through your parents yep. through a distinction that way, then that's not possible. Well, so kids don't ask for help because they're worried about what society will think, say or do. The number one reason kids give me for not talking to their parents about their mental health problems isn't that decades they're from a different generation they don't love me i don't love them the number one reason kids give me for not talking to their parents is i don't want to hurt them my mum and dad love me so much my mum and dad have sacrificed so much i can't now go and throw in their face that i want to die now, this is the selfish generation, right? This is the generation we're saying these kids are so selfish, they never think of anybody else. Think about that. Mm. Your child would rather die than tell you they are thinking about dying. That's mm. the ultimate sacrifice. I would rather die than hurt you by telling you I am thinking about. So we're the problem. We are the problem. You know, we need to create a space where our kids feel like they're talking to someone who has shared the same journey. Yeah. We're not the, and, and the timing's everything. The time that we do talk about these things um, with parents, or the parents talk about something, is when our child comes to us. Don't worry, son. Like plenty of other fish in the sea, mate. Yeah. I remember my first girlfriend dumped me too, mate. I remember that. But I went fishing. I caught your mum. Hey, you've got a good catch there. <laughs> so that's not the time. Yeah. The time to talk about our journeys is bedtime. Is you know, it's it's like dinner time. Sharing those things. Mm. You know, you're lucky, mate. When I was your age, I remember this girl dumped me, mate. When your age, I, I remember when I, you know I lost Grant. When Grand died and I was your age, you know, this is what I went through. And you're opening it up so they can recognise what they're going through in your story yeah. and know that they are normal. Okay. So Gumbert Friday has obviously become quite a thing. Mm -hmm. You must be proud of that. Very. And do you have goals 
forum? Where do you see it going from here? So every year it's going to double. So this year I need $6 million. Next year I'm going to need 12. Um, why? Because it's fast and efficient. My friend who um, that I was just talking about, her daughter, she went on the Gumbo website on Sunday mm-hmm. afternoon and they were talking to their counsellor on the kitchen table that night. That night. So it's a service that is fast and it's efficient. But we we are um, we are controlled by how much we can fund. Mm. So at the moment, I have five hundred and thirty-nine counsellors, psychiatrists, psychologists on my web, and even got a doctor on my webs uh, on the Gumboot Friday platform. Um, I could jack that up to three thousand. And don't don't you believe any of the BS that there aren't enough counsellors. There are more than enough. There are more than enough counsellors. There is just no one willing to pay them what they are worth. So, you know, I'll I'll, I'll give you a classic example. So three years ago, the Ministry of Education put forward $44 million to do 100,000 a hundred thousand um, counselling sessions a year, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's a hundred and ten dollars a session. Well, first off, you can't do it, so it's doomed to fail. The average for a counsellor is one hundred and fifty dollars uh, yeah. an hour. So, a <clears throat> hundred and ten thousand in the first year, they could only complete eight thousand sessions, I believe, at a cost of six million dollars. Something ridiculous. It worked out about four hundred and eighty-five dollars a session. Four hundred and eighty-five dollars a session. But of that, the council was getting between thirty and thirty and sixty dollars an hour. So where's the other four hundred and twenty-five thousand going? It's spent on admin. You know, it's like a taxi company. You need a building. You need people outside the building, inside the building. You need taxi. You need taxis. You know, in order to get the taxi, you have to go to the taxi rank and you're only allowed to take the first cab off the rank. This is under access and choice, the Labor government's uh, $1.9 billion plan that they put in place. What did we do? We invented Uber. And we pay you whatever you want to be paid. And they're coming to us, you know, you're paying councillors $150. That's too much. You're, you're paying $485. But we're only paying the councillors six. So where's the other $425? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, obviously, it's effective in getting people to want to participate yeah. in it and support it. And, um, and obviously, you are resonating um, with many parts of society and, and the kids. See, so I'm looking down now because you're giving me... Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, I think we'll leave it there, Mike. I have really, really valued today's conversation. Lots of um, major insights. I, um, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that uh, it continues to double as you wish. And, um, and it's a real pleasure to be around someone who's got such a clear purpose and making a difference in, in the lives of... Um, of society and, and our children. So thank you for your energy. Thank That's you, awesome. Stefan. And I think I'm the first guest that you've ever had that is shit with money. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> All right. Hey, thank you, everyone. Um, and thanks, Mike. That's great. To support I Am Hope, head to iamhope.org.nz. To support Gumboot Friday, 
head to gumbootfriday.org.nz.